<laughs> this is thrilling, isn't it? Um, it's fun. My name is Tulani Davis. I'm the chair of the Open Book Committee at Penn. On behalf of Penn, I welcome you all. I'm so glad you could come. As you're probably aware, Penn is an international organization dedicated to the advancement of literature, to spreading literacy in all communities, and to defending freedom of expression. For that reason, it is easy to understand why we wanted to celebrate James Baldwin, a writer who was not only active with Penn, but more importantly, whose life and work has liberated minds and bodies everywhere. So we salute him as part of our 20th century master's program. I'm here to thank those who have made it possible, including Mike Roberts, the executive director of the Penn American Center, Jane Moss and Lincoln Center, Howard Dotson, and everyone at the Schomburg Center for Research in Black Culture, The New Yorker Magazine, George C. Wolfe, The Kaplan Foundation, Time Warner, Trade Publishing, Lipper, publications, and vintage books. Max Rodriguez and the Quarterly Black Review, and photographers and filmmakers Richard Avedon, Siddharth Paquet, and Karen Thorson, who have been kind enough to donate their vis the visuals tonight. We would like to welcome uh, members of the family and a state of James Baldwin, and we are especially grateful that they could be here. Several people worked especially hard on this, Sean Roca and Andrea Jayaviran of Penn and David Leeming, and I give my personal thanks to them. All praise is due to them and all blame goes to me. <laughs> it has to be said that uh, James Baldwin brought all of these people and all of us to the party. Everyone we asked gave enthusiastic support because Baldwin, because of who Baldwin is. He is one of those truly unique figures in literature and history, a man who was truly engaged in all the issues of his time. He was prescient, fierce, elegant in word and deed, and he was right. We miss him, and he still keeps us going. Thank you. time I was 14, I knew I wanted to be a writer. And I wrote all the time. I wrote at first on paper bags. I wrote plays and poetry and stories. And writing was my great consolation. My father was very opposed to it, very frightened by it. And that frightened me. My mother was frightened, was frightened too, but my mother was another kind of person. She didn't try to stop me. I've been a boy preacher for three years. And at those three years, really, in a sense, you know, those three years in the pulpit, I didn't realize it then. That is what turned me into a writer, really, dealing with all that anguish and that despair and that beauty. For those three years, you know, I didn't want to, and I left because I didn't want to, um, to cheat my congregation. I knew I didn't know anything at all. And I couldn't leave, I hadn't left the pulpit, I had to leave home. So I left the pulpit and I left home the same day. That was quite a day.
There is an old Negro spiritual that I incorporated into a song. It goes, Lord, how come me here? Oh, Lord, how come me here? I didn't know him, but he knew me. He knew Harlem. He knew poetry. He knew Jesus. He knew my mother. He knew sin. I did not know him, but when I first read him, he knew me. This excerpt comes from The Fire Next Time. I became during my 14th year, for the first time in my life, afraid. Afraid of the evil within me and afraid of the evil without. What I saw around me that summer in Harlem was what I had always seen. Nothing had changed. But now, without any warning, the whores and pimps and racketeers on the avenue had become a personal menace. It had not before occurred to me that I could become one of them. But now I realized that we had been produced by the same circumstances. Many of my comrades were clearly headed for the avenue, and my father said that I was headed that way too. My friends began to drink and smoke and embarked at first avid, then groaning, on their sexual careers. Girls only slightly older than I was, who sang in the choir or taught Sunday school, the children of holy parents underwent before my eyes their incredible metamorphosis, of which the most bewildering aspect was not their budding breasts or their rounding behinds, but something deeper and more subtle in their eyes, their heat, their odor, and the inflection of their voices. Like the strangers on the avenue, they became, in the twinkling of an eye, unutterably different and fantastically present. Owing to the way I had been raised, the abrupt discomfort that all this aroused in me, and the fact that I had no idea what my voice or my mind or my body was likely to do next, caused me to consider myself one of the most depraved people on earth. Matters were not helped by the fact that these holy girls seemed rather to enjoy my terrified lapses, our grim, guilty, tormented experiments, which were at once as chill and joyless as the Russian steppes and hotter by far than all the fires of hell. Yet there was something deeper than these changes and less definable that frightened me. It was real in both the boys and the girls, but it was, somehow, more vivid in the boys. In the case of the girls, one watched them turning into matrons before they had become women. They began to manifest a curious and really rather terrifying single-mindedness. It is hard to say exactly how this was conveyed. Something implacable in the set of the lips, something far-seeing, seeing what in the eyes, some new and crushing determination in the walk, something peremptory in the voice. They did not tease us, the boys, anymore. They reprimanded us sharply, saying, you better be thinking about your soul. For the girls also saw the evidence on the avenue, knew what the price would be for them of one misstep, knew that they had to be protected and that we were the only protection there was. They understood that they must act as God's decoys, saving the souls of the boys for Jesus and binding the bodies of the boys in marriage, for this was the beginning of our burning time, and it is better, said St. Paul, who elsewhere with a most unusual and stunning exactness described himself as a wretched man, it is better to marry than to burn. And I began to feel in the boys a curious, wary, bewildered despair, as though they were now settling in for the long, hard winter of life. 
I did not know then what it was that I was reacting to. I put it to myself that they were letting themselves go. In the same way that the girls were destined to gain as much weight as their mothers, the boys, it was clear, would rise no higher than their fathers. And my friends were now downtown, busy, as they put it, fighting the man. They began to care less about the way they looked, the way they dressed, the things they did. Presently, one found them in twos and threes and fours in the hallway, sharing a jug of wine or a bottle of whiskey, talking, cursing, fighting, sometimes weeping, lost, and unable to say what it was that oppressed them, except that they knew it was the man, the white man. And there seemed to be no way whatever to remove this cloud that stood between them and the sun between them and love and life and power, between them and whatever it was they wanted. One did not have to be very bright to realize how little one could do to change one's situation. One did not have to be abnormally sensitive to be worn down to a cutting edge by the incessant and gratuitous humiliation and danger one encountered every working day all day long. The humiliation did not apply merely to working days or workers. I was 13 and was crossing Fifth Avenue on my way to the 42nd Street Library, and the cop in the middle of the street muttered as I passed him, why don't you niggas stay uptown where you belong? When I was 10, and didn't look certainly any older, two policemen amused themselves with me by frisking me, making comic and terrifying speculations concerning my ancestry and probable sexual prowess, and for good measure, leaving me flat on my back in one of Harlem's empty lots. Just before, and then during the Second World War, many of my friends fled into the service, all to be changed there, and rarely for the better, many to be ruined and many to die. Others fled to other states and cities, that is, to other ghettos. Some went on wine or whiskey or the needle and are still on it, and others like me fled into the church. For the wages of sin were visible everywhere, in every wine-stained and urine-splashed hallway, in every clanging ambulance bell, in every scar on the faces of the pimps and the whores, in every helpless newborn baby being brought into this danger, in every knife and pistol fight on the avenue, and in every disastrous bulletin, a cousin, mother of six, suddenly gone mad, the children parceled out here and there, an indestructible aunt rewarded for years of hard labor by a slow, agonizing death in a terrible small room, someone's bright son blown into eternity by his own hand, another turned robber and carried off to jail, it was a summer of dreadful speculations and discoveries, of which these were not the worst. Crime became real. For example, for the first time, not as a possibility, but as the possibility. One would never defeat one's circumstances by working and saving one's pennies. One would never, by working, acquire that many pennies. And besides, the social treatment accorded even the most successful Negroes proved that one needed, in order to be free, something more than a bank account. One needed a handle, a lever, a means of inspiring fear. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. The summer wore on and things got worse. I became more guilty, more frightened, and kept all this bottled up inside me. And naturally, inescapably, one night when this woman had finished preaching, everything came roaring, screaming, crying out, and I fell to the ground before the altar. It was the strangest sensation I had ever had in my life, up to that time or since. I had not known that it was going to happen or that it could happen. One moment I was on my feet, singing and clapping, and at the same time working out in my head the plot of a play I was working on then. 
And the next moment, with no transition, no sensation of falling, I was on my back with the lights beating down into my face and all the vertical saints above me. I did not know what I was doing down so low or how I had got there, and the anguish that filled me cannot be described. It moved in me like one of those floods that devastate counties, tearing everything down, tearing children from their parents and lovers from each other and making everything an unrecognizable waste. All I really remember is the pain, the unspeakable pain. It was as though I were yelling up to heaven and heaven would not hear me. And if heaven would not hear me, if love could not descend from heaven to wash me, to make me clean, then utter disaster was my portion. Yes, it does indeed mean something, something unspeakable, to be born in a white country, an Anglo-Teutonic anti-sexual country, black. You very soon, without knowing it, give up all hope of communion. Black people mainly looking down or look up, but do not look at each other, not at you. And white people mainly look away. And the universe is simply a sounding drum. There is no way, no way whatever. So it seemed then, and has sometimes seemed since, to get through a life, to love your wife and children, or your friends, or your mother and father, or to be loved. The universe, which is not merely the stars and the moon and the planets, flowers, grass, and trees, but other people, has evolved no terms for your existence, has made no room for you. And if love will not swing wide the gates, no other power or will can. And if one despairs, as who is not, of human love, God's love alone is left. But God, and I felt this even then, so long ago, on that tremendous floor unwillingly, God is white. And if his love was so great, and if he loved all his children, why were we, the blacks, cast down so far? Why? In spite of all I said thereafter, I found no answer on the floor, not that answer anyway. And I was on the floor all night, over me to bring me through. The saints sang and rejoiced and prayed. And in the morning, when they raised me, they told me that I was saved. Well, indeed I was, in a way. For I was utterly drained and exhausted and released for the first time from all my guilty torment. I was aware then only of my relief. For many years I could not ask myself why human relief had to be achieved in a fashion at once so pagan and so desperate, in a fashion at once so unspeakably old and so unutterably new. And by the time I was able to ask myself this question, I was also able to see that the principles governing the rights and customs of the churches in which I grew up did not differ from the principles governing the rights and customs of other churches is white. The principles were blindness, loneliness, and terror. The first principle necessarily and actively cultivated in order to deny the two others. I would love to believe that the principles were faith, hope, and charity. But this is clearly not so for most Christians or for what we call the Christian world. I was saved, but at that same time, out of a deep adolescent cunning, I do not pretend to understand. I realized immediately that I could not remain in the church merely as another worshiper. I would have to give myself something to do in order not to be too bored and find myself among all the wretched unsaved of the avenue. And I don't doubt that I also intended to be rather to best my father on his ground Lord, how come me here? Lord, how come?
In Go Tell It on the Mountain, the young protagonist, John Grimes, stands on a hill in Central Park. He felt like a long-awaited conqueror at whose feet flowers would be strewn and before whom multitudes cried Hosanna. He would be of all the mightiest, the most beloved, the Lord's anointed, and he would live in this shining city which his ancestors had seen with longing from far away. The hill in question is one on which the young James Baldwin had often stood, and the thoughts were the young Baldwin's too. The city was, of course, New York, but it was also America, the New Jerusalem, which Baldwin's ancestors could only long for from far away. John Grimes's thoughts are those of a prophet-to-be, of the Lord's anointed, who one day would experience both the adulation and the condemnation of the shining city as he revealed it for what it was. John Grimes is James Baldwin, and James Baldwin became that prophet, a black American born into the bleakness of poverty and the lie of the American dream, who would rise up with a voice dedicated like those of Ezekiel and Jeremiah to telling his people, the American people, where they had gone wrong, and what a voice it was and is. It could explode into fiery life at a meeting with Robert Kennedy or at a polite dinner party of liberals at an Upper East Side apartment. Most of all, it cried out in the great essays like Notes of a Native Son, Nobody Knows My Name, and The Fire Next Time, God Gave No Other Rainbow Sign, No More Water, The Fire Next Time. And in the agonizing dilemmas of novels and plays like Giovanni's Room and Another Country and Blues for Mr. Charlie, Baldwin's voice was uncompromising and unrelenting, like Jeremiah's, like Ezekiel's. It often hurt people, but it always contained the truth about who and what we are. When I was working for Baldwin in New York in Istanbul in the 1960s and discussing a biography with him in the 1980s, I asked him about his early influences, about who or what had made him what he used to call the perfectly impossible man he was. Where did he learn to deliver that frightening but somehow loving rhetoric that could leave people in tears as it broke down comfortable attitudes and woke up tired minds? It's not the Negro problem, he said to a sincere student questioner after a Harvard speech. It's the white problem. I'm only black because you think you're white. You're the nigger baby. <clears throat> Where did he learn that there came a time when it was appropriate to call a president a motherfucker from the pulpit of a great cathedral? <laughs> or that it was vitally necessary to keep a room spellbound and terrified for over eight hours through a long night while the lettuce on our plates wilted and he described how he had picked the cotton for all of us? Baldwin listed several primary influences at various times in our conversations. The first and most important, he always said, was his mother. Mrs. Baldwin, who many of us here knew, was a consistent source of inner strength and self-esteem. And in letters and Sunday dinners and in any way she could, she preached the doctrine of love to her son. It was she who taught him 
that racism and hatred hurt the racist and hater as much as the racist victim. If he was to do something important in the world, he must reach out to both. The man Baldwin always called his father was an influence too. In Notes of a Native Son, we learn that it was the example of his father that led him to understand just how self-destructive hatred could be. Mr. Baldwin's anger ate away at his mind, said his son. He was defeated long before he died because at the bottom of his heart he really believed what white people said about him. He knew that he was black but did not know that he was beautiful. And there were school influences. Gertrude Eyre, the first black principal in New York, who at PS 24 recognized something special in this seemingly lost little boy with big eyes and funny walk, and assigned him for special work with a young teacher from the Midwest who later, with her husband, took her charge to plays and political meetings that gave foundation to a developing belief in the power of art and political action. That teacher, Arilla Miller, would remain a friend for life. At Frederick Douglass Junior High, Jimmy was taken over by Bill Porter and County Cullen. Both Porter and Cullen encouraged him to write, and through Cullen he absorbed the twilight of the Harlem Renaissance, an interest in things French, and a sense of an as yet mysterious, shared, intimate otherness that could be powerful in its own right. At DeWitt Clinton High School, he continued to be taken up by teachers and now fellow students who recognized the growing power of his voice as a speaker and writer. But meanwhile, another powerful influence was the Pentecostal church in which Baldwin had, like John and Go Tell It on the Mountain, been saved and in which he became for a while an apprentice preacher. Baldwin left the church in his late teens, but not before absorbing the rhetoric of the Bible and the sense of the mysterious power of the word to move people and change their views and ways. He always said he left the pulpit to preach the gospel. The struggle during his adolescence between church, spirit, Harlem, and home on one side, and school, art, the world out there, and the growing needs of the flesh on the other led Baldwin to the first of many deep emotional crises. But more important, it led him to the bohemian world of Greenwich Village and into the metaphorical and philosophical arms of the great painter Buford Delaney. Buford had been recommended to Baldwin by a mutual friend as someone who might help him. When Jimmy got up the nerve to knock on the door of the shabby apartment at 181 Green Street, he was confronted by a short, round, brown man who when he had completed his instant x-ray of my brain, lungs, liver, heart, bowels, and spinal column, invited him in. <laughs> I know what that meeting and that examination were like because years later, I would be received at Delaney's door in Paris and had much the same experience. Baldwin always said he had opened that unusual door not a moment too soon. Here was a gay black man, like him the son of a preacher, who is nevertheless making it as an artist. Buford took on the boy as his primary charge. He taught him, as Luke teaches his son David in the Amen Corner, that the church forbidden jazz and the blues, the music of Ethel Waters and Ma Rainey, of Fats Waller and Louis Armstrong, the literal and metaphorical music of the streets, was just as sacred as the spirituals and gospel songs of the sanctified. 
Buford bridged Baldwin's two worlds, his many sides. He became what Baldwin would later call my principal witness and remained a close friend and mentor, really a father, if sometimes a very needy father, until he died in Paris in 1979. Perhaps most important, Buford taught the young James Baldwin to observe the world around him with meticulous care and to translate that observation into his art. Through Buford Delaney, the prophet-to-be learned that what one sees and cannot see says everything about you. There were, of course, other influences on the early life. The books poured over at the Schomburg Library, meetings with Richard Wright, the legendary Mother Horn, and Marian Anderson. Perhaps one final influence, however, needs to be mentioned. In December of 1946, Eugene Wirth, a young African-American whom Baldwin loved jumped off the George Washington Bridge and in so doing remained in the writer's mind until he became Rufus in another country. Eugene's suicide convinced Baldwin that he had to leave the shining city, at least for a while, so as to see it in perspective from a distance. In his growing despair over the waywardness of his people, the American people, he could follow Eugene, or he could make his way to Paris, long the sanctuary of so many black voices in the struggle. In 1948, he took that leap, and so began another stage of the story we're here to tell. Thank you. Four years ago, shortly after I had begun thinking about the life and work of James Baldwin, who has been dead for 14 years now, Dr. Betty Shabazz, widow of the martyred political leader Malcolm X, lay in critical condition at the Jacoby Medical Center in the Bronx, 80% of her body covered in burns. It was June. James Baldwin's famous eyes, the shape of poppies in bloom, stirred out from the paperback editions of his novels and plays, essays and dialogues that I had begun to read and reread earlier that spring, long before I sat as if in a narcotic trance before my television set, taking in the newsreel images of Betty Shabazz's life. One of the conditions of being a writer is that all those authors you have loved and learned from and by necessity have taught yourself to forget, the better to get on with your own work, end up encroaching on the real events of your life. It was impossible for me to look at Betty Shabazz or the grandson who had allegedly set his grandmother aflame without wondering what Baldwin would have made of it all. I imagined he would have seen in the story of Malcolm X, whom he had known, in Betty Shabazz's death and their orphan, orphan children, a parable of this splintered black American family. In particular, he would have seen something of himself in that scared and angry and messed up black boy committing horribly such irrevocable violence against his family, believing he had nowhere to go. 
That spring, I existed in a kind of self-protective numbness, paused between the death of Betty Shabazz and my own resurrection of James Baldwin. I became lost once again in Baldwin, the writer, lost in the rise and fall, the rise and fall of his language. As I read Baldwin in my present incarnation, I realized that he did not have a great formal mind. He did not have an expansive command of American history or politics. He wrote out of a sense of presumed intimacy with the reader, an early precursor to many of the memoirs currently in vogue. In order to read him again, I had to submit to his mind, obsessive, emotional, and self-reflective as it was. He invented and reinvented himself book by book. And through that invention, he had grown too dependent on his audience's ability to make him feel complete, seen, known. As a writer, I didn't want to be what he had become. I had learned from his example, the writer of delicate, precise talent who becomes a public figure, a spokesman, ceases to be the writer he meant to be. Yet, what I identified with in Baldwin's work, the high, faggot style of his voice, the gripping narrative of his ascent from teen evangelist to cultural icon, had not changed substantially since the days when I had devoured his books like some weird food, as he had described his own early love of reading. My admiration for the way in which he alchemized the singularity of his experience into art had not diminished. As a child, I had suspected that Baldwin and I were similar, but for a long time, I was unprepared to accept that. I have never been comfortable being identified as a black anything spokesperson in particular, particularly when that description comes from a white audience that knows nothing about its limitations. Nor have I ever been comfortable with the presumed fraternity some black writers, academics, and intellectuals feel with one another. I have spent my entire life trying to come to grips with my feelings for my own family, and I have not had room to be adopted by a family of whose provincialism, competitiveness, and misapprehensions I am not genetically bound. <laughs> Baldwin, at one point in his life, felt the same way. In 1959, when he was 35, he wrote from his self-imposed exile in Europe that he had left America because he wanted to prevent himself from becoming, quote, merely a Negro writer. He went on to become exactly that, the greatest Negro writer of his generation. Perhaps none of us escapes the whipping post we've carved our names on. But Baldwin's career became a cautionary tale for me, a warning as well as an inspiration. After leaving home when he was 19, Baldwin worked for a while in a defense plant in New Jersey. I learned in New Jersey that to be a Negro meant precisely that one was never looked at but was simply at the mercy of the reflexes the color of one's skin caused in other people. That year in New Jersey lives in my mind as though I first contracted some dread chronic disease, the unfailing symptom of which is a kind of blind fever, a pounding in the skull and fire in the bowels. It can wreck more important things than race relations. There is not a Negro alive who does not have this rage in his blood. In November 1948, when he was 24, unwilling to end up like his stepfather, sitting at the window, locked up in his terrors, 
Baldwin used the money from a literary fellowship he'd won to book pa passage to Paris. He arrived with just over $40 to his name and few contacts other than Richard Wright, who had arrived there two years earlier. But post-war Paris proved to be a refuge for a number of black Americans. And the Parisians, as Baldwin's friend Maya Angelou has said, were delighted with them. They were neither Les Miserables nor Algerians. <clears throat> France was not without its race prejudices, she recalled in an interview. It simply didn't have any guilt vis-a-vis -vis black Americans. And black Americans who went there from Richard Wright to Sidney Bechet were so colorful and so talented and so marvelous and so exotic. Who wouldn't want them? Shortly after his arrival, Baldwin met a 17-year-old Swiss artist named Lucien Happersberger. The fact that Happersberger was white and Baldwin was black was less of a transgression than it would have been back in the States. In Paris, Baldwin said, I didn't feel socially attacked, but relaxed, and that allowed me to be loved. But Lucien, who was bisexual and more attracted to women, was not completely available to Baldwin. Straight and bisexual men were to Baldwin's taste, or rather, to the taste of the isolation he fed on. For Baldwin, the first principle of love was what love withheld. His purpose was to get through another man's terrors in order to recognize his own. In the gay demi-monde, where looks count for a great deal, Baldwin was not a success, even after he became famous. <clears throat> There's a famous 18th century person, a poet told me, who used to say, I can talk my face away in 25 minutes, and Jimmy could do that. To a point, perhaps, but Baldwin was not pretty enough to compete in the world he had chosen for himself. If one is black and gay, and one's primary sexual interest is in men who are neither, one lives at a distance from one's desire. Baldwin pitted his ugliness against Western standards of beauty in his second novel, Giovanni's Room, 1956. A short tale, I said 1956, did you hear that? <laughs> <laughs> One track of mine. <laughs> his second novel, Giovanni's Room, an utter seriousness, he said. A short tale of love and abandonment that takes place in the bars and hotel, hotels of post-war Paris. The protagonist and narrator is a white boy from New York named David, who is in, one assumes, his late 20s. David is adrift in Paris. He is adrift, or more accurately, in flight from his homosexuality. At a gay bar he frequents, he meets an Italian bartender named Giovanni, who is sweet and passionate and just a trifle dim-witted, but who feels shades of E.M. Forrester. David can commit neither to Giovanni nor to his fiancée, Helene. His lack of a moral center has serious consequences. Made desperate by David's abandonment, Giovanni steals from his former employer and mur murders him in a scuffle. The melodramatic plot, in which each man really does kill the thing he loves, creates, in microcosm, the sentimental tone of Baldwin's later unwieldy novels, notably The Passionate Another Country, 1961. Giovanni's room isn't exactly self-affirming, but the fact that Baldwin wrote about the world of his sexuality at all is extraordinary, given the year and his race. So intense was the stern puritanism of most blacks I knew while I was growing up that one was 
not simply a faggot, but a damned faggot. When Giovanni's Room was published, Richard Howard recalls, it was regarded as an exceptional book, and gay people were proud that such a thing existed, and that it should have been written by a black person was kind of phenomenal. Baldwin was not a natural novelist. His voice as an essayist includes, intrudes on the plot lines of every novel he wrote, except Go Tell It on the Mountain, which was in nearly every sense his story. It was in Baldwin's essays, unencumbered by the requirements of narrative form, character, and incident, that his voice was most fully realized, and his attacks on the straight white boy gatekeepers of culture and politics remain appropriately vicious. In the 1950s, his most pugnacious contemporary was Norman Mailer. In 1959, the then 36-year-old Mailer published advertisements for myself, which contained his essays, evaluations, quick and expensive comments on the talent in the room. In it, he declares his admiration for James Jones and other major novelists of the time. But of Baldwin, he says, James Baldwin is too charming to be a major writer. If in notes, if in notes of a native son, he has a sense of moral nuance, which is one of the few modern guides to the sophistications of the ethos, even the best of his paragraphs are sprayed with perfume. Baldwin seems incapable of saying fuck you to the reader. Instead, he must delineate the cracking and the breaking and the melting and the hardening of a heart, which could never have felt such sensuous growths and little deaths without being emptied as a voice. Fag bashing? Baldwin did not take Baldwin's, did not take Mailer's comments lying down. And it's the faggy exhaustion in Baldwin's voice, the hardening of his heart, that amuses. Baldwin's subsequent essay about Mailer the Black Boy Looks at the White Boy, published in 1961, deflates Mailer's macho posturing with his perfumed wit. Norman, I can't go through the world you do because I haven't got your shoulders, he writes. <laughs> I want to know how power works, Norman once said to me, how it really works in detail. Well, I know how power works. It has worked on me. And if I didn't know how power worked, I would be dead. This is not ebonics, but gaybonics. The stylish voice one hears in many a black gay bar where a reed is a reed. Baldwin slyly makes fun of Mailer's infatuation with the predominantly black gay jazz world. Negro jazz musicians really liked Norman, he writes, but they did not for an instant consider him as being even remotely hip. They thought he was a real sweet ofe cat, but a little frantic. <laughs> <clears throat> Baldwin did not, however, own up to his reciprocal fascination with straight white boys and their privilege. Certainly in another country, Baldwin's own hip book about interracial sex, gay sex, pot smoking, and nihilism turned out to be an artistic challenge. By the time Baldwin published Another Country and the essay collection Nobody Knows My Name, both in 1962, he had become America's leading literary black star. Both books were commercially successful, but the reviews of another country were mixed. The novel centers on Rufus, a black male artist who falls in love with a southern white woman he meets at a party and has sex with her on the host balcony. After becoming involved with her, Rufus is tormented by a world that cannot understand their love. He beats her, she ends up in a mental ward, he commits suicide. The subplots about adultery, bebopping, and ambition are equally melodramatic. Elizabeth Hardwick astutely observed in her review for Harper's, 
In certain respects, this novel is a representation of some of the ideas about American life, particularly about the Negro and American life, that Baldwin's essays have touched upon. But what is lacking in the book is James Baldwin himself, who has, in his non-fictional writing, a very powerful relation to the reader. When Baldwin began writing Another Country, he had temporary, temporarily renounced his stony exile to return to the States. He wrote part of the book in the novelist William Styron's guest house in rural Connecticut. Styron recalled, we gave him a place to stay. It was winter. I used to watch him, this very black figure, climb through the snowdrifts toward our house. I was writing Nat Turner, and I talked to him about it. Later, he defended the book, which came under attack by black intellectuals. We'd feed him, and he'd come around at night. We'd have these very liberal political people over, and Jimmy, who'd embarked on his role as a preacher, he used to stand in front of the fireplace and say, baby, we're going to burn your motherfucking houses down. <laughs> to try and unravel the various contradictions in Baldwin's work is to risk seeming foolish. Ideology denied in one book is confirmed as gospel in another. In his earliest essays, he insisted he did not want to be the things he eventually became, merely a Negro, merely a Negro writer, merely a homosexual, merely a spokesperson for his race. And yet these contradictions are one of the most value, val valuable features of his work. Without a large tradition of work about his culture, his history, his politics, on which to base himself, he had to make himself up, which is still the curse for others not unlike him who feel they only have James Baldwin to work against. I had wanted to dislike him more than I do in order to have some distance from his influence, but is it an influence I have absorbed? My acute awareness of Baldwin's weaknesses as a writer stemmed from my sense of kinship with him. Certainly, Baldwin understood the particular kind of ambivalence having written the following at 36. One of my dearest friends, a Negro writer now living in Spain, circled around me and I around him for months before we spoke. One Negro meeting another at an all-white cocktail party cannot but wonder how the other got there. <laughs> the question is, is he for real or is he kissing ass? Negroes know about each other what can be here called family secrets, and this means that one Negro, if he wishes, could knock the other's hustle. Therefore, one exceptional Negro watches another exceptional Negro in order to find out if he knows how vastly successful and bitterly funny the hoax has been. The pain one goes through in order to find the other exceptional Negro is more likely to lead not to laughter but to, but to derision on the other Negro's part if he or she is established. To laugh at the system that has produced either of us is to discount, discount its importance. Reading Baldwin, I was able to laugh, laugh again this laughter is somewhat quelled by the, by the knowledge that there is one great Baldwin masterpiece waiting to be published, one that was composed in an atmosphere of focused intimacy rather than in the stiff black preacher shoot that was his legacy, and that is a volume of his letters, letters his family does not want published. When I asked one of his biographers why the Baldwin family wouldn't allow his letters to be published, he explained that the family felt he shed a negative light on them particularly on David Baldwin, who was their father and not his, and they were uncomfortable with his homosexuality. And yet Baldwin left his legacy in their hands. In the end, even a bastard may be reclaimed by his family. Thank you.
making James Baldwin. What does this mean? County Cullen taught you in junior high in Harlem with that great history of Renaissance with only Langston Hughes, the remaining monument? What does it mean? When you really know you don't want to deliver packages or be some sort of clerk in a back room some way, somewhere way downtown, what does it mean when you know what nobody has told you? You were here before him whom you call father, who didn't so much dislike you as simply not understand why you were a witness that he wasn't first. And you had to deal with all this while thinking maybe I'm not good looking, maybe I'm not ordinary. Would this make you a James Baldwin? So when you're looking around and you realize you're angry because it's just not right that people who look like you, people who are small and black and lonely but bright and funny and sweet can't find a way in this world and every time you do something you think is pretty wonderful, that man whom you call father is trying to grind you down to his size, which isn't so much small as afraid of what's out there. And somehow you keep trying to please the unpleasable. So you kitty preach in church because at least everybody says amen. And you think, have I found a place? But you know you can't find a place when people still look at what your heart desires, what your arms need as the worst sin, worse than lynching black men and women, worse than denying prescription drugs to old people, worse than withholding vaccinations from poor children, worse than anything because even bad off folks want to find something worse than their pitiful lives. And they're trying to use you and your talents and your hopes and dreams to make themselves more whole. Would that make you a James Baldwin? And then it occurs to you, if you are a deer in headlights, move and avoid being steamrolled. Move and don't take the hit. Move and find another place to be. Move downtown and meet people who accept you and not judge you. Move to Europe and fall in love. Move with your love to Switzerland and write your books and determine never to deny what your heart knows is the truth. Never turn your back on what your mind knows is right. Never refuse to hear the cry of the anguish nor the laughter in the blues. Do it all this time that you go around because it's the only time to do it. So be a stand-up guy who stands up first for yourself and then all the people who need an arm to lean on or a heart to hear, a voice to raise for the righteousness of, for the righteousness of it. And maybe that would make you a James Baldwin. Though I never met James Baldwin in person and never even saw him at a public event, he is nonetheless to me like a father or a beloved uncle or mentor. That is to say, he is in my mind nearly every day for the very simple reason that he was instrumental in creating my mind. And to the degree that my life and work have been shaped by my mind, especially in the way it is positioned with regard to race in America, James Baldwin shaped that life and work. Our actual lives never touched except through his words, which is the most intimate touch of all. And his words expressed in those early essays, which later became Nobody Knows My Name, 
and the fire next time, entered my life at a time when I was a very young man, impressionable, confused, ignorant, and emotionally turbulent, still a boy, actually, a well-intended white New Englander who had romanticized his sweetly naive but pragmatically useless youthful idealism so that he could take pride in it, so that he could think better of himself seated somewhat uncomfortably in a guilt-drenched 1950s white boy garden of privilege. However, although I had almost no idea of how to go about becoming either, I wanted badly to become a writer and a good person. I was a pipe fitter in New Hampshire then, with no college and little travel, an unpromising situation, but thanks to my fuzzy, self-serving idealism and my twin desires to become a writer and a good person, I was reading in those days, the late 1950s, early 1960s, periodicals like Partisan Review, where I read for the first time the, to me, mind-altering essay, Nobody Knows My Name a letter from the South. And then the brilliant dissection, Faulkner and desegregation, deeply troubling to me, for Faulkner had already been at work creating my mind for several years now. I was reading The Progressive, possibly the only person in Concord, New Hampshire at that time, <laughs> certainly the only pipe fitter, where I came upon his my dungeon shook letter to my nephew on the 100th anniversary of the emancipation. And then one unforgettable night I read in The New Yorker, transfixed and transformed, the long essay that we remember now as the fire next time, called their letter from a region in my mind. Baldwin's words, his language, trickled into my ear and became an inner voice that woke me suddenly from a long, mind-numbing, conscience-killing slumber. I can imagine many generations earlier a young New England boy reading Emerson for the first time and feeling, thinking, as I did on first reading James Baldwin. Here was the undeniable, inescapable truth of the matter. And good God, it was right in front of my eyes all along, and I never saw it. You felt as if you had been blind and were suddenly given sight, or foolish and had suddenly been given sense. It's so easy when you are a white man in America to remain blind to what lies in front of you and a fool. How ashamed, yet wonderfully liberated I was when I read this single, single pair of sentences, for example, among so many others, there appears to be a vast amount of confusion on this point, but I do not know many Negroes who are eager to be accepted by white people, still less to be loved by them. They, the blacks, simply don't wish to be beaten over the head by the whites every instant of our brief passage on this planet. White people in this country will have quite enough to do in learning how to accept and love themselves and each other. And when they have achieved this, which will not be tomorrow and may very well be never, the Negro problem will no longer exist, for it will no longer be needed. I could feel my heart and head clear together, my thoughts and pulse racing from premise to conclusion at the speed of light, it seemed, as I sat in my rented room in Keene, New Hampshire now, and read not quite by candlelight, but in the dim glow of a bedside lamp, 
Baldwin's elucidation of the so-called Negro student movement, the earliest manifestation of what soon became the civil rights movement, an elucidation that gave me leave a few years later to cleave in my own feeble way to the work too. The goal of the student movement, he wrote, is nothing less than the liberation of the entire country from its crippling attitudes and habits. The reason that it is important, of the utmost importance, for white people here to see the Negroes as people like themselves is that white people will not otherwise be able to see themselves as they are. I truly wish to see myself as I was. And to the degree that I have been successful in this, Baldwin taught me how. His aphoristic style, his mixture of high diction and low, the rhetoric of the pulpit and of the street, his willingness to take the universe personally, and his uneasy relationship with Christianity. These are qualities he shares with Emerson, one of my earlier fathers. And in fact, I believe that Baldwin's essays can stand easily alongside Emerson's. And because there lies at the center of Baldwin's thinking the central fact of the American imagination, which is race, his essays in the end will go further towards the shaping of the American imagination than those of any other writer so far, and will do so even under generations to come. You write in order to change the world, Baldwin said knowing perfectly well that you probably can't, but also knowing that literature is indispensable to the world. The world changes according to the way people see it. And if you alter even by a millimeter the way people look at reality, then you can change it. His heart was a target of opportunity, and he suffered terribly for it. But James Baldwin changed the world. And in the moment you are born, since you don't know any better, every stick and stone and every face is white. And since you have not yet seen a mirror, you suppose that you are too. It comes as a great shock around the age of five or six or seven to discover the flag to which you have pledged allegiance along with everybody else has not pledged allegiance to you it comes as a great shock to discover that Gary Cooper killing off the Indians when you were rooting for Gary Cooper, that the Indians were you. It comes as a great shock to discover that the country, which is your birthplace and to which you owe your life and your identity, has not in its whole system of reality evolved any place for you. I don't know what most white people in this country feel, but I can only include what they feel from the state of their institutions. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church which is white and a Christian church which is, which is black. I know as Malcolm X once put it, it's the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. That's what's a great deal for me about a Christian nation. It means that I can't afford to trust most white Christians and certainly cannot trust the Christian church. I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me, that doesn't matter, but I know I'm not in their unions. 
I don't know if the real estate lobby is anything against black people, but I know the real estate lobbies keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that we have to go to. Now, this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith, risking myself, my wife, my woman, my sister, my children, on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Negroes were upstairs here, Negroes were If you are a Negro, there's nothing you can do at all. And one evening, something happened to me, which was, um, which frightened me ever since. And it was simply that I walked into a restaurant where I knew I would not be served. But I walked in with the determination to be served or, or to die. And I um, waited. I wasn't served, of course. The woman said, poor little girl, said that uh, Negroes were not served here. And I, um, I wanted to kill her. But I couldn't get close enough to her, so I threw a glass of water at her. And when the glass of water hit the mirror behind the bar, I woke up. And it was a terrible turning point in my life. I never forgot it because it was the first time in my life that I ever wanted really to hurt anybody. I mean, they're killing my friends. It's as simple as that. And I've been all the years that I've been alive. For no reasons which, you know, which, which have any validity. I'm not really in America a private person. No, I'm, I'm a public person. A public person cannot write. The writer has always had to find, and I'm not the only case, and not the most, even the most spectacular. You have to find a way to do your work. Because if you don't do your work, then you really are useless. The best thing I ever did in my life, I think, was, in effect, flee America and go to Paris in 1948. And it gave me time to vomit up a great deal, a great deal of bitterness. At least I could um, operate in, in Paris, without being menaced socially, no one cared what I did. And when I was living in Istanbul, I don't want to be romantic about poverty, because it's not pretty. Nevertheless, the Turks, the people I was dealing with, who had nothing, reminded me of the people I grew up with who had nothing, who would give you any, anything, really, the share of their back, money, bread, was anyway a kind of place to rest and, and to work. But I couldn't do it in Paris anymore. New York is impossible. And it was in some ways um, another way of life, another set of assumptions which are not are not mine or you know not 
which I didn't grow up with, because I'm not a Muslim, but which can teach you a great deal about your own set of assumptions, because they are, once you find yourself in another civilization, you're forced to examine your own. It is the unutterable truth. All men are brothers. That's the bottom line. If you can't take it from there, you can't take it at all. Love has never been a popular movement. And no one's ever wanted really to be free. The world is held together, really it is held together, by the love and the passion of very few people. Our man, Jimmy. In these opening days of American Weimar, with a counterfeit president for a fake democracy, <laughs> it is deeply inspiring and absolutely necessary weapon and shield of true self-consciousness against an oppressor nation its lieutenants, deranged pets, hired killers, artists, academic courtesans, and the dangerously uninformed, to reflect on the obvious grandeur, wisdom, and strength of that tradition of the Afro-American intellectual artist, teacher, that it is revolutionary and democratic. And Jimmy B is high up in that tradition. Certain skip gates keepers try to make trouble by whispering by whispering as far as most people are concerned that holy doo-doo, if not for Baraka and those other over-the-top colored types, Jimmy might have passed blazing into the Britannica pantheon of white right. But alas, there are neither colored men's nor women's in that cave of virtual significance. Matter of fact, only one girl in the place and she represents the Pope. They said, they said Du Bois would have made it, but he always be talking about real shit. In the 50s, I did criticize Jimmy in some review, complaining in my infantile leftist mode that while Jimmy was playing the distressed esthete in Europe and moaning that instead of confronting the racial animal, we should all try to love each other, my rejoinder as benediction was that we should get back to our real work, cutting throats. Which actually, given the drunken little races whose criminal seizure of the presidency inordinately super-whitened the already amazingly Caucasian crib, is an idea whose time has apparently never split. <laughs> when Jimmy returned to the U.S. with some visible hearness, it was to rise at the very center of the civil rights movement, often at Dr. King's side. To me, three voices heroically characterizing the fieriest period of the civil rights movement are Dr. King's, Malcolm X, and James Baldwin. That is one of the principal reasons this brother is recognized, respected, and loved, particularly by black people. Because he was not just a cocktail party social theorist or typewriter paladin, but a great artist whose written word and spoken word came fully to reflect his real life practice and fearless humanity in the world. Unfortunately, 
Like the rush of white noise from those mail-order sleep-inducing devices, there is sometimes well-paid idiocy abounds which seeks to confirm the blunt reaction that swarms through well-placed empty heads and IOUs of feeling left in place of some souls who try to marginalize James Baldwin. Even before the New York Times removed him from the front page of its book review for committing the grand masterpiece Blues for Mr. Charlie, but it just reminds us of how this same enhanced toilet tissue removed Dr. Du Bois from his charm and squeezability for his crime of being an activist and speaking out against nuclear weapons in the 50s. He was attacked, as Jimmy was later, for being a people's democrat, which is indeed revolutionary in what he called the last white country on earth. Attacked like Du Bois for being a social activist as well as an innovative grand master of thought and language. But the mustard seed-sized ideological mirror of what presumably they think passes as analysis or deep thought of the motley little speck of gatekeepers and academic rent-a-cops of the imperialist superstructure, its institutions and the philosophies they are built to forward and maintain are despite all cosmetological, cosmetological, <laughs> cosmetic hocus-pocus, despite all cosmetic hocus-pocus and gibberish, still give off the insidious perfume of a crowded commode. Imagine, imagine in the face of Notes of a Native Son, the Amen Corner, Go Tell It on the Mountain, Giovanni's Room, Jimmy was never in no closet, The Fire Next Time, The Great Blues for Mr. Charlie, or the still unsung masterwork, Evidence of Things Unseen, the Stooges want to raise up some Johnny One-Note sycophant of literary socio-political conservatism who is really celebrated so energetically because he dismissed both black nationalism and Marxism and for a baffo exit, let the heebie-jeebies castrate him symbolically, literarily, of course. It's called deconstruction, you dig? And then, <laughs> and then as denouement, turn his soul into an insect, the National Book Award. Jimmy, like W.E.B., was in the main social aesthetic tradition of the Afro-American people. Can you dig it? The main social aesthetic tradition of the Afro-American people, an oppressed nation with the right of self-determination. Because of slavery and national oppression, black people have a common, though not monolithic, psychological development, which is expressed in a generally common culture. Though all nations and peoples have two cultures, the culture of the oppressed and the culture of the oppressors. These are defined as contradictory ideological poles of class, as form and content. So Mr. One Note expresses the artistic culture of the conservative wing of the black petty and national bourgeoisie. Baldwin, until the day he left here, was in the main a voice of the Harlem toilers. Once more, check out evidence. It was the boys who laid out the psychological double consciousness of Afro-America where black people are literally torn between being obviously black and de jure, albeit Native Americans. But the legacy of that teaching today is that we have come to know we are both and that those contradictions are actually two edges of the terrible swift sword of Afro-American struggle, wielded with such profound and dangerous beauty by giants like James Baldwin. As far as his going back and forth to the south of France, after his honorable service in the Afro-American People's Democratic Volunteers, under the inspired and inspiring leadership of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X during the height of the Civil Rights and Black Liberation Movement, during this period, Jimmy was in the United States regularly, that's when we would go by McKell's on West 100th Street, where his brother David would try to waste both of us with very cavalier quantities of Brother McKell's spirits. 
and fuel with it, there were many times we'd go off dialoguing under the blue-black city night, looking to peel the apple right down to the core. In those later years, the main reason Jimmy went to the south of France was the right, since he was, even independent of his will, obstructively visible and very public when sailing across, around, anywhere in this place. David was our contact and connection, my man, the laughing raconteur of West 100th Street. But now they're both gone, and we must conjure all our strength to face the crowd of wooden Negroes who, lacking any culture but that of the bourgeois white behind, now energetically join the class of savage right-wing bushwhackers. But if we are true to that irrepressible tradition that animated our man, Jimmy Ball, and listen to this, the Western world is located somewhere between the Statue of Liberty and the Pillar of Salt. Or dig this droll film review titled, The Devil Finds Work. Even when I criticized Jimmy as a young man, I still understood that and when I first saw him as an undergraduate at Howard University uh, with the Amen Corner, he whose direct TV eyes dawned and welcomed me into our writing, you know, from the cover of Notes of a Native Son, and even disguised behind the infantile half uh, understood, you know, yo, brother, I had hurled at him. I felt that that was merely the younger brother, as he called me, this younger brother, chiding the older brother to get on it. Because if we read and understood, Baldwin, if we understood that couched and loaded within his sermonic expression, his public stature is a deep religious regard for righteousness and a moral opposition to evil anywhere it appeared. And as I noted in this piece at the Black Arts Convention in 84, the religious hypocrisy to Jimmy was the same as the social hypocrisy. White America was no more democratic than it was religious. Black people were no more citizens than white Americans were Christians. So that in many critical points of the works, Baldwin would use the biblical text as the amen, the shout of recognition, the yes Lord of the witness that what he had seen and felt was true. Baldwin said, the spirit of the South is the spirit of America. He said this in his last great works, Evidence of Things Not Seen, a book he had to sue McGraw-Hill to release once they had turned it down. For Jimmy, spirit was the animating reality of our living consciousness and relationship to the world. It was what made us human or not. His constant metaphor for the spirit of white America is menace, danger, murder, atrocity. His own work sought to evoke the spirit and truth of the excitement and drama of the church from its evocative wordship, its altar from whence the word would come, that high place. And so the grandness of Baldwin's written prosody was of speech made into text so that the spirit of the written word conveys the moving life of the speaker. One of the most important aspects of evidence's style form is that in it, Baldwin is able to give us the motion of the peripatetic observer observing the Atlanta horror and its complexities, bearing witness to the individual and collective guilt of white America and its petty bourgeois Negro management class with the precision and deftness of his own Jimmy self as some non-cocktail, non-party where the squares hang on the walls like wallpaper waiting to be pasted. The spirit of Jimmy's work is of a high moral prophetic vision, the witness who has been buked and scorned like John the Revelator, digging the coming attractions on Patmos, the spirit of that grimly beautiful message to the churches, what was grim is what Jimmy spoke of when he said that white America thinks that black people's religious beliefs are childish 
But that's the trick, the grim payback, because as Du Bois laid out in Black Creek Construction, suppose you really believed in God. Suppose you believed in all that, the Old Testament, the New Testament. Suppose you believed one night you might meet the Savior walking down the street, and you were that blood and here was the lamb who had promised to deliver you. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling down the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. He has loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. What that eternity of humming meant, even after the drum got took away. At the coming of the Lord, it's going to be your ass. All you heathens, it's going to be your natural ass. This was likewise Jimmy's religion and his spirit. Thank you. When I first met the wide smile of James Baldwin face to face, <laughs> I just burst into tears. In less than a heartbeat, he opened his arms as wide as his smile. And as he held me close and hard, he said, and what have I done to deserve all this? The time was the late 70s, the place his sister's apartment in the famed West 71st Street house. The living room which framed us with its walls of pictures and books and African draped chairs and sofas and pillows was also a studio filled with Paula-made hats and long silhouette dresses in gorgeous earth tones. This day, the room was alive with the aroma of groundnut stew and paella and the sound of the Roberta Martin singer's new release be still my soul. We four then, Gloria, Paula, Jimmy, me, hugging up, laughing through rainy eyes. Suddenly, as if I had not made enough of a fool of myself, I began to recite his observation recorded in notes of a native son as he stands before the great cathedral at Schach. He had said, some may admire the power of the spires and the glory of the stained glass windows. I am terrified by the bottomless pit down which the heretic was hurled and the hideous grinning gargoyles strutting out of the stone. Perhaps I have known God in a different way. When I had finished this second outburst, his great eyes widened, his face lit up, this time absent of a smile. He looked at each of us as though to assure himself that we were palpable. And then almost as a whisper, he said, child sit he sat on a pillow and we beside him gazing straight into that phase where midnight and dawn shared equal time at play his stark white shirt open at the neck emboldened the ficus tree at his back for a moment he was pure portrait then he spoke that is exactly what i meant he said this sound this smell these faces this love this moment and we said, all three of us together, and Sonny went all the way back. The man's laughter shook the room. 
That sound, he said, is how Go Tell It on the Mountain got its name. Then he told us the story. One day, as Lucienne and I were returning from the small village below the chalet, we discovered that we had lingered too long and that night would soon fall. For fear that we might miss our trail, Lucienne suggested a shortcut which required us to leap across a gorge. Lucienne was a mountain boy, I was not. <clears throat> I stood before the gorge trembling and Lucienne said, now is no time to lose your head. I made a mistake. I looked down into the abyss and knew that if I failed the leap, I was lost. I paced back, I ran forward and took the leap. When I felt myself on solid ground, I began to weep and something from home grabbed me and brought me to my feet. I heard the sound, I heard the song. I didn't find the song, it found me. It was go tell it on the mountain. By the time the room began to fill with friends, the conversation had turned to the terms of existence in the American novel. It was a conversation that lasted throughout the day and night. It has not ended and will not end as long as you and I shall live. For the terms of existence is, after all, the Baldwin subject. It informs 124 book reviews, seven works of nonfiction, two plays, a collection of stories, six novels, one scenario, and a collection of poems, his terms for existence. Of his grown growth to maturity, James Baldwin has said, I was at war with, was completely unable to accept the assumptions of the official vocabulary into which I had been born, which assumptions it had been supposed would guide my life and keep me in my place. Baldwin's central project throughout his writing career was to shatter that official vocabulary, and in doing so, he claims an ancestral role in the formation of contemporary literary and social theory and pedagogy that drives the academy today. Though he clearly precedes what the academy in the United States promotes at millennium, at millennium as the public intellectual, Baldwin had no base in the academy until 1978 when he was invited to residency at Bowling Green University and also lectured at the University of California at Berkeley. Five years before his death in 1987, he became a five-college professor of literature at Amherst, Hampshire, Mount Holyoke, Smith Colleges, and the University of Massachusetts. But long before then and ever since, he had defined the condition of knowledge, queried the situs of authentic being, and attacked the foundations of the large historical schemes that have defined being and commanded our belief investment and adherence. Baldwin's steady attack on these traditional attitudes, these monsters of the mind, these fantastic and fearful images or social texts called nigger or queer or any of the established index meaning not us, informs the current project of the academy and inflects American and global life as much as it precedes current theoretical formulations. As early as 1955, in Notes of a Native Son, he had said, of traditional attitudes, there are only two, for or against. And I personally find it difficult to say which attitude has caused me the most pain. I think all theories are suspect that the finest principles may have to be modified or even pulverized by the demands of life, and that one must find, therefore, one's own moral center and move through the world hoping that this center will guide one aright. 
From this moral center, he located and unmasked traditional attitudes or in his words, theologies that deny one life. For, he said, the basis of the vocabulary into which we were born is that white Christians, aided perhaps by a few Jews, are the authors and custodians of civilization and history, a delusion validated only by the action and reality of white power. Now that that power is being contested, the moral basis of our vocabulary is being revealed, and it is not an ennobling sight. The gates of our cities are barred, and famine, danger, and death are the ruling citizens. It is time to re-examine the principles of the vocabulary which has led us to this place. From notes to his final novel, Just Above My Head, he warns us that what the world calls morality is nothing but the dream of safety. But for Baldwin, the only safety is to dare love. Love is the term for existence that he left us. It remains a challenge for the Academy and for our lives. Good evening. James Baldwin bequeathed to me and to you a language and a mission. That language was the language of the King James Bible, transmuted by African-American vernacular speech into an instrument which gained the attention of all Americans. And I think the power of that language can be measured, can be gauged, because it was the last language which allowed so-called white Americans and so-called black Americans to look each other in the eye and pretend that we shared a country and shared a destiny and perhaps there was some way that we could get it together and inch this country forward from the horrors of its past. There has been no writer since, there has been no language since in the literary community that has accomplished that kind of magic and for that alone we owe James Baldwin a great debt. As a writer, I'm tired of hearing Baldwin's career chopped up, his literary heritage chopped up, particularly by chopped up into two pieces, the essays and the fiction. And that sort of approach to Baldwin seems to me to always amount to a kind of giving with one hand and taking away with the other, so we're left with what? Nothing, mediocrity. And that approach is 
only possible if one forgets that language is language and good writing is good writing. And the borders that some of the detractors of Baldwin are attempting to erase in terms of gender, in terms of race, in terms of class, are the very borders that are inhibiting their understanding of the fluidity of Baldwin's language and his literary heritage. We don't need to chop him up into kinds. We need to read and listen to the music and the truth because his mission was truth. Um, <clears throat> what I came to do primarily this evening was to read a poem for James Baldwin. I remember him as a colleague, as a friend. I remember him singing. I remember him singing the song that you'll probably hear a little bit later. And I think we'd be amiss if we didn't remember that social being because it was his life it was that energy, his, his willingness to give. Forget whether he's right or wrong, but his ability to be there, to be in the midst, to be present for all of us. That, again, is his legacy. The eyes, sitting across from him, looking into those eyes. The poem for James Baldwin. What can we say to this knife edged air, this ice-blocked stream, this blue steel sky? How do we speak to you, who is our voice, and still now, too patient to laugh at us, but smiling, yes, yes, and the glass in your hand, your steepled knee, that elegant rag of many colors swirling round your throat? Surely we knew it would come to this. It always does. Against fiery last-ditch light, trees are x-rays of themselves, prisoners stripped, flayed to the bone. The dogs, the dogs, Jimmy, and one 10-year-old black boy so scared, pee-pee about to run down his pant leg but he ain't turning round, not today. No woman, no cry, not today, mama. Gonna tear this old building down with love, with fire and bare hands, your words like 10,000 trumpets shaking hills to their foundations. Poor boy, long way from home. Poor boy, long way from home. Poor boy, long way from home, been here and now he's gone, been here, and now he's gone. Think of little David and his slingshot, monkey shine signifying, blowing the emperor away. We wait for the earth to turn and tilt again, winter shadow to lift, rainbow wisdom of grandmothers, grandfathers, priests, warriors, ghosts, shuffle and strut and tons and tons of babies still to come, our people, our breath, your words. Tell us the circle is strong, will not be broken, though the clay, the clay, my brother, is weak, weak as a slave ship 
ought to be. Steal away, steal away. We gather in this frozen land beside a river of mourning. Saints chant, be not dismayed whate'er betides. And you march skinny in your billowing black robes down the aisle, mount the pulpit, and shout us, sing us, bound to glory man, wherever that might be, wherever you are now, catching your breath and testing it, and amen, how sweet it must be, free, free, at last, the cup to your lips, and emptied and full, and go on with your fine self, child, home. The day I finally met Baldwin. <clears throat> the 1960s decade opened propitiously for me and for my country, Nigeria. In 1960, Nigeria freed itself at last from British colonial rule. I published my second novel and proved to myself that the first one was not a flash in the pan. <laughs> the fact that a senior executive from Rockefeller Foundation in New York knocked at my door in Lagos, Nigeria, with the offer of a travel grant, I think proves the point. Where would I like to go? I said, East and Central Africa, and it was done. Two years later, UNESCO came along with its grant. This time, I elected to go to the US and Brazil. In UNESCO files, the purpose of their grant was to meet writers and study literary trends. Privately, I wanted to see how the African diaspora was faring in their two 
largest concentrations in the new world. I was curious about America because the British colonial education I had received took pains to put America down. One of my teachers in high school was fond of reading out editorials written by Nigeria's leading nationalist, who apparently wrote very bad English. <laughs> and he linked this deficiency of the Nigerian to his American education, which was, of course, totally inferior to the British brand and featured such subjects as dishwashing. <laughs> Needless to say that American books and writers did not feature in my education, with one exception. It was called Up From Slavery by Booker T. Washington. And so, when I encountered Baldwin's books, they blew my mind. I wanted very much to meet this man with the fearlessness of Old Testament prophets and the clarity, eloquence, and intelligence of ancient African griots. Unfortunately, Baldwin was not in the US when I arrived, but in France. The organizers of my program apologized casually and went ahead to arrange for me to meet those who were around. I went to Rutgers University and met Ralph Ellison in his pokey little office. He was okay, <laughs> but, but I, had a, I had a sense that it was not a happy meeting. He seemed so anxious to establish that Europe contributed a good deal to his identity, that Beethoven was as much part of it as jazz. Why was he telling me? Everybody knows that. <laughs> or did I look somehow like a kidnapper on the prowl? <laughs> no one else I met quite gave me the same feeling. Langston Hughes, John O. Killens, Paul Marshall, Amiri Baraka, then called Leroy Jones, and others. By the way, I also met Arthur Miller, who graciously took me to lunch and spoke enthusiastically about the new Lincoln Center. <laughs> My chance to meet Baldwin finally came almost two decades later in 1980. My joy no doubt triggered the rather 
untypical flamboyance with which I greeted him. Mr. Baldwin, I presume. <laughs> you should have seen his severe countenance crumble instantly into boyish happiness. The occasion was the annual conference of the five-year-old African Literature Association meeting that year in Gainesville, Florida. The association had invited Baldwin and me to open their conference with a conversation. Everything was going swimmingly. The tone was joyful and also serious. With typical hyperbole, Baldwin called me his buddy, a brother he had not seen in 400 years. <laughs> the packed auditorium exploded in gleeful applause and nearly missed the terrible aside. It was never intended that we should meet. What he said about my novel, Things Fall Apart, was quite extraordinary. He read it in France, he said. It was about people and customs of which he knew nothing. But reading it, he recognized everybody. That man, Okonkwo, is my father. How he got over, I don't know. But he did. Halfway into our conversation, a mystery voice broke into the public address system and began to insult Mr. Baldwin. The geniality vanished. Some of the stalwarts in the audience rushed out to guard the exits. For a fraction of a second, Baldwin seemed nervous. But he quickly recovered his composure, stood erect and defiant, and began to reply to the intruder. But Mr. Baldwin will have his say. White supremacy has had its day. Looking recently at an amateur video recording of that strange evening in Florida, I took note for the first time of one unfulfilled prophecy from Baldwin. He said there were only 20 years to a new century, and he said he would be there because he was stubborn. But as we all know, he did not make it. He did not even make it to the University of Massachusetts at Amherst, which had invited him and me for the fall semester in 1987. Our conversation had been stopped for good 
or has it? Literal-minded people have always had trouble with the language of prophets. As when Baldwin says to his nephew, you come from a long line of great poets, some of the greatest poets since Homer. One of them said, the very time I thought I was lost, my dungeon shook and my chains fell off. A bitter critic accused Baldwin of encouraging black nationalist automatons in the belief that they were descendants of kings and queens and should therefore uncritically identify with Africa. Baldwin did not advocate uncritical identification with anything. All his life, he literally bristled with critical intelligence. He had a problem with Africa, which he called the African conundrum. At one point in his life, he compared his African heritage most adversely with the heritage of humble Swiss peasants. Out of, the, out of their hymns and dances came Beethoven and Bach. Go back a few centuries and they are in full glory. But I am in Africa watching the conquerors arrive. Those are not the words of uncritical advocacy. The difference between Baldwin and some of his critics is that he was not scared of anybody or anything. He was not even scared of Africa. Thank you very much. as witness, he wrote until the end. We hear of the writer's blocks of celebrated Americans, how great they are, so great indeed that their writing fingers have been turned to checks. But Jimmy wrote, he produced, he spoke, he sang, no matter the odds, he remained man and spirit and voice, ever expanding and ever more conscious. Let us hold him in our hearts and minds. Let us make him a part of our invincible black souls, the intelligence of our transcendence. Let our black hearts grow big, world-absorbing eyes like his, never closed. Let us one day be able to celebrate him like he must be celebrated if we are ever truly to be self-determining. For Jimmy was God's black revolutionary mouth. Precious Lord, take my hand, lead me on. 
understand I'm tired I'm weak I'm worn Through the storm Through the night Precious Lord, take my hand and lead me on. Precious Lord, take my hand and leave.